This message first aired on the radio on February 17, 2004. As we continue in the 15th chapter, we recall that our argument that we're reading from the Apostle is against those who would teach that there's no resurrection. And he's giving the logical consequences that if they're correct, that there's no resurrection from the dead, what consequences would be visited on us who are the believers in our Lord Jesus Christ especially? And you remember he said if there's no resurrection, then the Lord Jesus Christ is also not raised. And if he is not raised, then our preaching is false. And also, anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is just selecting another version of vanity or waste of time with respect to faith. And let me just say something about faith for a minute. Today, people of faith is a phrase that's used quite a bit. Well, he's a man of faith, or this man has faith. Let me tell you that having faith is not meritorious whatsoever. I am not a better man because I have faith. Uh, I am not morally correct because I have faith. Uh, We all have faith or we all trust something, someone, somewhere, sometime. Most of us have our faith, I believe, placed in the systems of this world or in the world system. We have our faith placed in government or other systems. We may have our faith placed in ourselves or in our family or in our vehicles, or in our doctors, or in our lawyers, or wherever it is that we place our faith. So everyone believes something, and everyone trusts something. Faith is not a meritorious quality. The only time faith is morally correct is when it is properly placed. And the only time faith is properly placed is when it's reasonably, logically and correctly placed. That is to say, when our trust is according to truth. So faith in Christ is certainly not meritorious. It's not meritorious. Christ's work on the cross, that is what is meritorious. I tell people, even my friends, commonly, there is no such thing as a salvation that isn't earned. Salvation from sin is earned It is just earned by someone else, not me. It's earned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I place my trust in that fact, then I have wisely placed my trust. But it is not meritorious. What did I do to earn the death of Christ? Nothing. And that's an important point to make. But if Christ, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then certainly Jesus Christ himself is also not risen. This resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the central fact of Christianity. That's why the Apostle certified to us here in the 15th chapter how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's why it says, verse 3 and 4, that's why he began by certifying that. Apparently this truth was being contradicted in Corinth very early on in what we commonly know as church history. And he's writing this now, he's pointing out, first of all, he's saying this is the truth. Christ was raised from the dead. He did rise, according to the scriptures. But if you're going to entertain that there's no resurrection, then first of all, consider the consequences. The Christ is not raised. We're liars. Your faith is wasted. Your faith is in vain. And all those who've gone before who have died, and there were some who had died by that time, people who had believed and who had died, those who had fallen asleep in Christ, they're also dead and without hope. 
And then he points out, if in this life, and of course if there's no resurrection of the dead, then all of our hopes need to be focused on maximizing the opportunities of our time here below. And we should not give any consideration whatsoever to a life hereafter. That's if there's no resurrection. On the other hand, if there is a resurrection of the dead, then the life hereafter should take most all of our attention because this life here below is short, usually not short and sweet, usually short and sour and full of all kinds of difficulties. Therefore, he concludes that if there's no resurrection of the dead, Christians are of all men most miserable. Well, we've covered that. Now we also took up briefly verses 20 through 28. But I want to point out a little bit about the structure of verses 20 through 28, and then we're going to go through it with a little more detail so that we'll understand exactly how it sits. And because we'll do that, we'll understand better verse 29. Now, verses 20 to 28 are digressions. It's a digression in thought by the apostle. Doesn't mean it's less important thought. Doesn't mean it's, it's somehow less important for us to think about. But he digresses from his main discussion. And his main discussion is the consequence, logical consequence, the logical outcome, if there is no resurrection, of what that means. As he considers the thought that Christ did not rise from the dead, he digresses into the truth. And he takes up this digression to certify the truth underpinning the simple gospel verses that he gave in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Now he certifies the truth in verses 20 through 28. And we're going to look at the truth that he certifies because this is the present sense of our Lord Jesus Christ that we who have believed in him need to carry around in our thoughts all day every day. He says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of them which slept. Now the first fruits is a, a portion of the harvest that happens at the very beginning. And in fact, it's part of the harvest insofar as it inaugurates the harvest. But there was the first fruits harvest, and in fact there was the first of the first fruits which the priests would certify in the barley harvest. And they'd go out and they would collect the first of the first fruits, and they would bring it and offer it to the Lord. And that was the inauguration of the harvest. So here we have the resurrection of the dead likened to the harvest that was ceremonially conducted in Israel. And it's the barley harvest. It's the grain harvest, not the fruit harvest. So we look here at he's the first, first fruits of them which slept. That is to say, the Lord is not a whole harvest. He's the beginning. He's the dedicated harvest to God. He's the first of the first fruits and he started a first-fruits harvest of them who have slept. And there's going to be a complete harvest. Now, we don't have the whole harvest given here in 1 Corinthians 15. That's not the point. But we have this truth, germ truth, we might say, that the resurrection of the dead is likened to the harvest. So when we come to the book of the Revelation, we're going to see the entire scope of the harvest, we see the first fruits is already passed. The first fruits harvest won't be taken up there, but the main harvest will be taken up, and also the post harvest or the vintage will also be taken up there. Well, I just give you that because here we find the truth that resurrection corresponds 
to the harvests that we see in the scripture, specifically the grain harvest. Now he says, he is the first fruits of them that slept, and we also have this word sleep. We have the word slept as those who are referred to in Christ. Same as verse 18, they which are fallen asleep in Christ. He says, if Christ didn't rise, those aren't sleeping, they've perished. Well, we know as believers, those who have trusted Christ as Savior and who believe in the faith that is written in the Bible, know that when someone dies in Christ, that they've received Christ, we don't mourn for them as we do for others who have died outside of Christ or without faith in Christ. And the reason that we don't is because we know that they will come again with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that we'll see them again and that they'll receive new resurrection bodies as was taught in the book of Romans. So here we see, by man came death, by man also comes the resurrection of the dead. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. And as we've stated and we continue to state, that recapitulates the truth of Romans that where sin abounded in Adam and death came through him, grace has also abounded in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a new federated head of a new humanity. It says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're in Adam, you're going to die. Well, what does it mean to be in Adam? Well, that means to say that you've inherited the nature of Adam. You have a genealogical trace to Adam. Now, how is it to be in Christ? Well, you are a new creature created in Christ. You have not a genealogical tie, but you have a tie in the new creation insofar as he has given you a new nature that is created in the likeness of Christ or after Christ. Now it says, every man in his own order. And now we see an order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the first of the firstfruits, and we see those that are in him, the, the full truth not given here, but those that are in him also raised with him. Christ encompasses, the word Christ encompasses not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but his body, whose body we are when we trust in him. And then they that are Christ's that belong to him at his coming. So the first fruit harvest is also going to be broken into two pieces. The first of the first fruits, which is our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the rest of the first fruits, which is his body. And also Christ has more than just his body. He has Israel. He has saved Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ has much, and he's coming back, and he will also raise those in glory at his coming. So now here we look a little bit about his coming. And he gives us a time frame, and he says, Now after that, or then, comes the end. Now this end is the maturation of all things. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now as we inspect this, we see that in fact the apostles' argument here is that the Christian life is to be totally forward-looking and not focused on the events here below. And of course, this is the reason he takes up the digression. He's uh, certifying to those who he knows, understand what he's talking about. He certifies to those who really hunger for the truth 
he sets about to establish them against the false teaching that they're hearing in their own church. And the way he does it is he focuses their attention in a way that, by the way, is extremely similar to the book of Hebrews, because he points out that the Lord is coming to put down all rule, all authority, and all power at his coming. So if we look at the book of Hebrews, we're going to see how wonderfully contextual this is and what the apostle is trying to do as he attempts to knit together, as the good tent maker he is, the church in Corinth, which is a temporary dwelling place of God's people. He's a great tent maker here, and he's trying to put together the doctrinal structure inside these believers. And this is something that God would have us to do. He told Timothy, retain the outline of sound words that was given to him by the Apostle Paul. God desires for us to have a solid foundation and a solid framework of Scripture in our lives so that we not be deceived by those, even if they're in our own church, who would teach us wrongly. So here now we'll see how first we've seen how 1 Corinthians reflects backward to the book of Romans. We can also see how this 1 Corinthians 15, how it ties together consistently with the book of Hebrews, especially the second chapter. And I want to say that no scripture is of private interpretation. It all has to fit together and be consistent. And so it's a wonderful thing to behold the consistency of the scriptures here. Now we have Hebrews chapter 2, which says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should drift away from them. And here's what the apostles actually thinking, you see. Uh, consistent with the rest of Scripture, the apostle is concerned that the Corinthians would be drifting away from the central focus of the Christian faith. He said, be careful, give earnest heed to what you hear, lest at some time or at any given time you would drift away from them. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, that a reference back to the Old Covenant, which was steadfast, a word spoken by angels given to Moses, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them which heard? And of course, the apostle Paul is one who established the faith unto us as one that heard him. He personally heard from the Lord Jesus Christ, a claim he had made in the epistle of 1 Corinthians. I'm now reading from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So he says, we won't escape if we neglect to hear from the apostle Paul, for example. And that's the application that the Corinthians have. You say, well, did they have the epistle to the Hebrews? They may have. And certainly they had the teaching that's contained therein it, at least to some extent. Now here, look, it moves just from there that God visited with signs and wonders to signify those to listen to. Paul is earnestly contending now. He's diligently shepherding the sheep because they may be listening not to the ones that God signifies, but they may be listening to a bunch of fakes in Corinth who, instead of being moved by the Holy Spirit, are denying the very truth of Scripture. This is the very serious condition that underlies all the problems of Corinth, and by the way, may underlie all the problems in your church 
in our own day as well. And we're going to look here now at Hebrews and how it talks about the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in the second chapter, just as it does in 1 Corinthians 15, so that we'll have comfort and be certified of what the truth really is. We'll be back in a minute. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. We're studying 1 Corinthians 15, and we're taking up the digression of the Apostle Paul from the 20th verse through the 28th verse, and he says, Then comes the end when the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 24, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Well, that extends quite a ways into the future. In fact, that verse is not speaking of the day that the Lord actually returns, but it's encompassing a thousand years inside of itself at his coming, and then he'll spend a thousand years putting down all power, authority, and rule in the earth, and he'll rule with a rod of iron. In fact, that's what the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ is. It's a rule with a rod of iron, and I'll tell you what, I'm glad that for that reign I'll have a resurrection body and won't be a sinner because I don't want to get spanked with some rod of iron. Uh, Things will be run right in that day, that's for sure. Well, now we look at the comparison and the parallel and the harmony that we have with the book of Hebrews, whereby, by the way, we see that the work of the sign gifts was to signify those that heard the Lord and established the truth unto us. So you see how this knits all together, like a good tent maker that Paul is, how it knits all together the place of the sign gifts, including the speaking in tongues and prophecy, how it knits it all together and brings us to the same place as 1 Corinthians. Because we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, For unto the angels he has not put in subjection the age to come. And now we see that there is an age to come after this age. And it's an age of resurrection, at least for the Christian believer. It is an age of resurrection for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And, by the way, it's an age of resurrection for those faithful Jews who also place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even it is the same day of resurrection for those Gentiles who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here it now says... Unto the angels, Hebrews 2.5, he has not put the age to come into subjection whereof we speak here in Hebrews. But in a certain place it is testified, saying, Hebrews 2.6, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visits him? That's Psalm 2. And he's now the writer of Hebrews, which I think is the Apostle Paul. He is now setting forward the thought of the age to come, and that man will be placed above the angels in the age to come, headed up by our new head, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all. And as a man, that's what he, he is the Lord of everyone. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of you, whether you believe in him or not. That's why I don't like the phrase, the unbiblical phrase. It's not according to Scripture to say, uh, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Uh, You don't have to make him anything. He's not just the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of all things, and there is no other Lord of all things in humanity. And when we talk about him as the Lord, we mean as a human being. 
He is the Lord of all things. There may be other underlords. There may be human beings that think they're the Lord of something. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all things. He is our Savior, and he's not just my Savior. He's not my personal Savior. He is the Savior of the whole world, and he is the Lord of everything. Now, that's whether you believe it or not, he is Savior and Lord. Now, in the age to come, there's not going to be any controversy about who's the Lord. He'll be visibly reigning, and he will have qualified a humanity that will rule and reign above the angels. This present age, the angels reign and rule above men. And so we see behind the affairs of men, for example, the warfare and manipulation of angelic beings. But the Lord Jesus Christ, during this present age, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, during this present age, the Lord Jesus Christ, here it says, Thou madest him for a short while lower than the angels. That happened a couple thousand years ago. He was made for a little while lower than the angels in rank because he became a man. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. And so as such, he took upon himself an order of created being that was lower than the angels in the order of today. But in resurrection, and of course this now has to do with the resurrection, because in his resurrection he conquered sin and death, and he was exalted above the angels. And that's what it says. He, Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. And so, here, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, in resurrection, and only in resurrection, by the way, only in resurrection was he exalted above the angels. This is now Psalm verse 8. Then it says, uh, further, in verse 8 of Hebrews 2, quoting the same psalm, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. So here we have the word of God saying that everything has been put in subjection under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That corresponds back to Hebrews chapter 15, where we read, and verse 24, where he's going to return the kingdom to God, and verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So the Lord Jesus Christ has to reign until all the enemies are put under his feet in order to fulfill Psalm 8, that God has put all things under subjection to the Son of God. Now here we learn the grand, some of the grand plan of redemption. The grand plan of redemption was God loved the world, brought his son into the world, raised him up from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended in glory, reached the right hand of the throne of God, and as a man was exalted above the angels and invited to sit until his enemies were made his footstool. And then... After all his enemies are made his footstool, everything subjected unto him, as 1 Corinthians 15:24 told us, he will deliver the kingdom up to his God and Father after everything has been put under him. Then God will be all in all, verse 28, which we'll come to. This is a wonderful, grand portrayal 
of the sweeping future history of our Lord Jesus Christ. We say future history because it's as certainly done as history is certainly done. It is as certain to happen as that Christ died for our sins, and it is as certainly prophesied about him as was his death, burial, and resurrection. All this according to the scriptures. So now we're reading still in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, there is nothing that is not put under him. This is what we would say is an apparent contradiction, because we have the end of verse 8. But we see not yet all things put under him. And that's a fact. Now, I know there are those going around saying everything has been put under him, and we just have to see it with the eyes of faith. Here the scripture says, we do not yet see all things under him. In fact, the great contradiction to this that we see in the world today is the same enmity against the Lord Jesus Christ there always was. When he came to die for the sins of the whole world, it's not as if men appreciated it. There was enmity and hatred against him. Evidence of his need to die for our sins is remarkably obvious in the fact of the hatred of him when he came to die. In fact, while we were yet enemies, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He died. Scarcely would a good man die for his friends, but there might be one or two. But who dies for his enemies? The Lord Jesus Christ died for his enemies. When they hurled their vindictive hatred upon him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, uh, they didn't. They ignorantly crucified the Lord of glory. But the times of that ignorance, God used to overlook. He doesn't overlook that ignorance anymore. You may say, well, they were ignorant when they crucified the Lord, or they wouldn't have done it. That's true. The Bible actually says that they were ignorant or they wouldn't have done it. But that ignorance is gone now. There is no, the, the, the Word of God is wide open, available to anybody. You don't have the excuse of ignorance, my friend. You know now who the Lord of all is. And the only reason you don't believe in Him, according to my Bible, is because you love darkness rather than light. But the fact is, we do not now see all things under Him. And I think that's too obvious to argue about. Scripture doesn't argue about it, doesn't give proof of it. just says, we see not yet all things put under him. That's a fact. Now verse 9, but what do we see? What we do see, we see Jesus. Now here's what we see with our eyes of faith. We don't see all things put under him by the eyes of faith. We know all things one day will be put under him by the eyes of our understanding. But right now we see everything in rebellion to him. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We know that the whole world lies in the evil one, but that we are in God. And here it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little, or for a little while, lower than the angels, in order to suffer death. We see him crowned with glory and honor, that he, according to the grace of God, would taste death for every single man. Now that's what we see. We see a Savior who died in our place and who's on the other side of resurrection waiting to return, leaving us opportunity to believe in Him. For it became Him, this is now Hebrews 2, verse 10, 
for whom are all things, and by whom, by the way, are all things. All things are not just reserved for him, but he actually created all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make their captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now here we see the Lord Jesus, the captain of our salvation. He's the first one over the hill. We that are his that is coming will be the next ones over the hill, which is a wonderful a thought here and it's certified to the believers in the face of those who would teach that this world is all that we have and that there's no resurrection of the dead now where's this being taught well it's not being taught in Corinth at the University of Corinth it's being taught in the church in Corinth what a shame but that's the way it is that's what we have to deal with now it tells us verse 25 he must, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And that will take a thousand years. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign a thousand years with a rod of iron. And at the end of that thousand years, uh, amazingly, but true, there will be a rebellion against him uh, by men and angels. Now, during that thousand years, Satan will be bound up. He won't be free to move among men but he'll be let loose at the end of that thousand years and men will actually war against the Lord Jesus Christ who is reigning personally then it says verse 26 the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death now people will live long in the coming thousand year reign of our Lord Jesus Christ it tells us in the book of Isaiah that a child will be a hundred years old scarcely does a person live to be a hundred today but a person will be considered in that day uh, a child at a hundred years old but they'll still be dying the last enemy to be destroyed is death now it says for he hath put all things under his feet and that is to say this even death will be swallowed up in the victory and subjection of our Lord Jesus Christ here we have verse 27 of 1 Corinthians says when he says all things are put under him it is manifest that he that is God the Father is accepted which did put all things under him and when all things shall be subdued unto the Lord Jesus Christ verse 28 when all things shall be subdued unto him then shall the Son of Man also be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all and here's what it is it says if God unfolded himself to us sending the Son of God to become a man displaying all there is to be known about God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ unfolding himself to us coming out redeeming us taking us into glory and folding us back into the Godhead where God will be all in all you say what does that mean I don't know what that means but it has to be something tremendous where God is all in all that's the final time with God and the eternal glory this is all the discussion we have about eternal glory in God finally the Lord Jesus Christ will take everything that has been subjected unto him and God will be all in all verse 28 now that's the end of the digression that Paul gives here it's a very important part of scripture because it gives us a nice outline it gives us a broad time outline into which we can place the rest of the prophetic writings that will be coming in the context of what we call commonly the New Testament. 
here's the time the Lord Jesus Christ has risen. He has been glorified. He will come back and reign. He will reign until everything is put under his feet. And after everything is put under his feet, of course, he's accepted from that. He won't be put under anybody's feet because everything's put under his feet. And at that time, then he will subject himself to the Father and God will become all in all. You say, you may ask me what it means. I don't know what it means exactly, but I do see that it is the pinnacle and apex of the glory of God in his plan. Well, that's a wonderful idea. We'll come back to the rest of the argument now that we've finished his digression and enjoyed it very much, by the way, after this brief announcement. I hope you stay with us. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. Now, as we come to 1 Corinthians 15:29, we've completed our digression of 20 through 28. We can bump verses 19 and 29 sort of together, at least contextually, because he continues his discussion of the consequences of the position that some are taking in Corinth, falsely, that there's no resurrection of the dead. He asks now another question. So we look at verse 19. He says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And now verse 29, he continues to take up the discussion, What would it mean to us if there's no resurrection? And here's the question he asks. It's a rhetorical question. We should know the answer to it. Else what shall they do which are baptized? And by the way, the Greek language doesn't have punctuation. The script of the, well, I say that, the Greek language used in the writing of the scripture has no punctuation. In fact, the text of the Bible is written in what is called unseal form. The words are all run together in all, what we might just say, all capital letters. There's no capital lowercase. There's no spaces between words. It's all just written all together in what's known as unseal, or all caps run together. And so when we look at the text, now I'm not one who who does that. Uh, I trust that I have had a pretty good job done for me by others, but I do know enough to know that if I have to go look, I can see that it's so. But here, punctuation is added by translators for readability. Unhappily, in verse 29, I think it could have been punctuated better. I think that the stopping of sentences and and separate thoughts would help us be kept from maybe misunderstanding this passage in verse 29. Now, it's not misunderstood by all that many, but those who do misunderstand it do it on purpose, and they go start up a whole system of nonsense based on it. So let's read it correctly, and I know this will help you uh, when you want to discuss your faith with those who have been misled. Uh, For example, the Mormon church, so-called church, the Mormons misuse this verse in order to continue on an error, which, by the way, was begun hundreds and hundreds of years ago, whereby somebody could save another person. Well, here it says, what shall they do which are baptized? Or, uh, in other words, what does it mean about our baptism? What is our baptism? If there's no resurrection of the dead, what kind of a symbol is baptism? Because those who were baptized are just dead. If there's no resurrection, of course, baptism is a symbol. You go down in the water, you come up out of the water. It's a symbol of resurrection. Otherwise, baptism is meaningless. So what shall they do who are baptized? In other words, if Christ isn't raised, 
this baptism is a meaningless kind of a thing. They just put them in the water and leave them there. Then they drown to death, and then what's that? It's murder. Well, here now it says for the dead. It's for the dead. In other words, if Christ isn't raised, baptism is just what? For the dead? It's just, it's just a little picture of, yeah, we're all going to die? We don't need that picture. Uh, we've got that picture when we attend funerals. We've got that picture when we look in the mirror and see that we're getting old. We don't need a picture like that. What we need a picture of is a picture of resurrection from the dead, and that's what baptism is. This has nothing to do with substituting somebody else's baptism for somebody who has died trying to save those who are dead. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ and every right-thinking spiritual person of all time has known that it is improper to pray for the dead or especially to the dead. It's too late then. We don't pray for the dead. We certainly don't pray to the dead. Now, there is a form of pagan religion that has consistently done that throughout all ages. Prayed for the dead, prayed to the dead. And that paganism has been mixed into Romanism. It's been mixed into Mormonism. It's been mixed into every kind of false religion that there is. And it's pathetic, but it's true. But the Bible doesn't own anything of that. What good is baptism if the dead rise not at all? And, of course, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And why, then, are they baptized? Why would someone be baptized? Is it just because for dead? Is it because of the of dying or for being dead? Just to remain dead? And, of course, the answer to all of this is no. There must be a resurrection. There must be a resurrection of the dead for baptism to make any sense at all. That's verse 29. And then verse 30, the apostle asks another rhetorical question. Why do we, that is the apostolic company, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why are we troubling ourselves? Why are we taking upon the hatred and ridicule of the world if there's no resurrection of the dead? And now he's pointing out, indeed, all of Christian faith and practice is stupid, foolish, miserable, if there's no resurrection of the dead. Indeed, everything Christian hinges on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 31, he said, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day, which is to say, I risk my life every day. Every day, the apostle is facing death. Now he's talking about his own experience. He said, if I have hope in this life, what a ridiculous life I have. You can't have it both ways, friends. You can't have it that the Christian faith might be true, therefore I'll give it a little try. Either the Christian faith is true or it's false, and you'd be foolish to even become familiar with it if it's false. There's no reason for that. But the apostle even now lays himself out and gives his example of his life, and he says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead don't rise? Now here he talks about the experience he had in Ephesus, and he uses a figure here 
talking about wild beasts. Of course, the apostle, he wasn't thrown into some kind of a fight with wild animals. Uh, They didn't attack him as he came. He's talking about men here, and he characterizes them as wild beasts. When he was in Ephesus, uh, they sought to kill him, and men acted like wild beasts. In fact, for two hours, they chanted in the big stadium, not Go Big Red, but they chanted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They chanted their little mantra and their praise of their false goddess. There's no hatred vented like religious hatred. And so here he said, If after the manner of men, in other words, I use a figure of the manner of men, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. I faced beasts there. What advantage does it have for me if the dead rise not? He said, look, I'm, I'm a nutball. If I risk my life with that wild bunch in Ephesus, if there's no resurrection of the dead, I'm a total nutcase. And by the way, that's what you have to deal with. You have to, you have to call the Lord Jesus Christ a crazy man and a dead man. You have to call the apostles insane people. Well, small thing then, if you're willing to do that, to call me crazy. But uh, let me assure you, Christ did rise from the dead, and we're not of all men most foolish. We're the only ones that are sane anymore. Well, that's what the apostle argues, and he's done with that argument in the 32nd verse. Now he gives them a word of caution. He gives them a word of caution, verse 33. And the context of this verse is important. This is a moral truth at all times. But the context of this verse Uh, gives it an ominous tone to it. Verse 33, In light of the fact that the Corinthians have in their own midst people who would reject the resurrection, the whole idea of a resurrection from the dead, thereby rejecting the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting the certainty of our own resurrections, he says, verse 33, Do not be deceived. And that's a warning to every Christian for all time. It is, it is a warning to Christians to not be deceived by false teaching even in their own churches. It happens. Be not deceived. Why do you think God went through all the trouble of delivering to us the entire Bible? Because he could not trust men. The Bible did not come out of the church I assure you, the church is to come out of the Bible. That's a big controversy, but the Bible doesn't need the church. The church needs the Bible. God didn't trust himself to men. He knew what was in men. This we read about the Lord Jesus Christ in John, the second chapter. It tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the miracles he did. John 2, verse 24 But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't trust men when he walked the earth, and he hasn't trusted men since. He's preserved his word through every generation, just like he said, and we have the word of God, so that deceiving men have been unable to keep it from us. It breaks loose upon us, despite their best efforts. Be not deceived, he tells the Corinthians, and us. And later in that same verse, 
verse 33, he quotes a piece of poetry. Here's what it says, using the sanctified words of the earth here. Evil communications corrupt good manners, or uh, evil associations corrupt good ethics. I, I find it interesting today. We want to study ethics. We want to have departments of ethics at the university. We think that somehow imparting ethics to people will do them good and will save them. But we don't do anything about evil associations. Ethicists are associated with the most evil people. They're part of the same faculty, so forth. Listen here. Good ethics are totally washed out by evil associations. What's he telling the Corinthians? Of course, we know the principle that evil spreads, good doesn't. What's he telling the Corinthians? Don't associate with evildoers. Who's he saying are evildoers? Actually, he makes it pretty clear here. The evildoers are those who are teaching against the resurrection of the dead, at least in this context. Now he says, verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Now he's telling the Corinthians, he's really getting tough with them. He's saying, there are some in your midst who don't even have God's knowledge. They don't have God's knowledge, and this is a shame. It should be that God's people, if the church is to be what it's supposed to be, the pillar and support of the truth, everybody should have God's knowledge, and they should all be saying the same things. So how is it that in Corinth, and my friend, maybe in your church also, there are those who say there's no resurrection of the dead, or that Jesus Christ is not raised? How is that possible? Well, it's not possible to be such a way and be consistent. Now he says, wake up, quit sleeping, awake to righteousness, and sin not. Some don't have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Well, that's a a horrible thing. That's the worst thing that a Christian can anticipate is shame. In fact, we don't desire shame. We desire the opposite, which is never to be ashamed and to be glorified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it is possible, if you don't take care of your own faith, that you will end up ashamed at his coming. That's what he says. Now, the rest of this chapter of this epistle, starting from verse 36 and going through the end of the chapter is going to be a technical discussion of how the resurrection of the dead actually is. And it's a marvelous set of truths. We're not going to take it up today, but it's a, it's a wonderful passage, and it's not a very well understood passage. So I hope that entices you to come back with us next time. And until then, may God bless you in your meditation of His Word. I'm John Malone. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net.